Now, I know you're going to love that picture of Alexander right there on the front. The, <laughs> Alexander III of Macedon. He was an amazing character before we even get, in, get into him. I just wanted to mention a few little things. Uh, Alexander was 14 years old when he was in the, uh, the military. By the time he was 18 years old, he was a general. By the time he was 20, he was a king. He was an amazing person. And you know, I just watching uh, uh, on the History Channel, I had watched some things on Alexander, and I, I thought how sad. He was such a searcher. And there was idol gods, there was all of this uh, uh, idol worship, and they believed in the gods and the mystical and all that. And he was a searcher. And it was too bad that he wouldn't have met up uh, with a Daniel. And he died as a very young man. So we're in Daniel chapter 8. We're going to talk about the vision of the ram and the he-goat. And we see two things that show us that we have now begun a new section in the book of Daniel. Chapters 2 through chapter 7 have been written in Aramaic because these chapters pertain to the time of the Gentiles. And the remainder of this book in Hebrews is in Hebrews because the revelation of it concerns the Jewish people in particular. So verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. The third year of Belshazzar was about 551 B.C. This vision occurs way before Belshazzar's drunken feast on the night of the fall of Babylon, recorded in chapter 5. Remember that. So we're going backward chronologically here in chapter 8. In fact, this vision would have taken place more than 12 years before the feast detailed in chapter 5. So it's kind of out of order. What Daniel says, after the one that appeared to me the first time, he is referring to the vision of the four beasts in Daniel 7. That was his first vision. He interpreted uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, but he had this was these were the two that he had had so far. Daniel is still living in Babylon, and he is somewhere now between sixty and seventy years old. Verse two, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, or your Bible may say Susa, the citadel which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulay. Daniel is seeing this vision as if he was in Shushan or Susa. It could be that he was physically or spiritually transplanted, transported there, such as is in, is in the case of Ezekiel, which we see um, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to get to that. Or that he simply saw the vision as if he were there. And just looking at some of the commentaries, and they kind, of, uh, they kind of think he was physically there. But that's not the way that scripture reads to me, and I don't feel that that's the way it was. And I'm going to tell you my thinking on that is because of what happened to Ezekiel. So Shushan, or Susa, was a city. It was about 200 miles east of Babylon, where some believe that Daniel lived during the exile, 
And in fact, they believe his tomb is there today. The site of Susa is modern Iran, whereas the site of Babylon is in modern Iraq. King Nabonidus, you know, he was the father of Belshazzar, the, the absent king. Uh, he stayed there often. The city was later taken by the Persian king Cyrus and became one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire, specifically the winter capital, because a lot of them really liked Babylon. So I want to take, talk to you uh, a moment about the vision that I believe that, that, that a similar thing happened to Daniel that happened to Ezekiel. You remember that, and this is, I'm going to be reading some from Ezekiel 8. And says, so you remember that Ezekiel is taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in the second state, siege at the age of 25. He was 25 years old when he was taken, it, he, taken to uh, Babylon. He was the son of a priest. Uh, his father's name was Buzi, or Buzi, B-U-Z-I. Uh, and he himself was a priest, and he would have entered his priestly duties at age 30. So now he finds himself as a captive in Babylon. Um, so the plan has, looks like it has changed for him. Becoming a priest, it looked at, at this moment, was out of the question. As an exile in Babylon, this isn't going to happen. But a strange thing happens. God always has a plan, and this did not surprise him. And even though he was son of a priest, even though at age 30 he would have begun to assume his duties, God just tweaked the plan. And I don't even think he tweaked it. I think this was his plan. We do the tweaking. His plan's the plan. When Ezekiel turns age 30, the very year that he would resume his priestly duties, God calls him to be a prophet. So he's not only just a priest, he's a prophet and a priest. Ezekiel is living with the exiles along a major irrigation canal that leaves uh, the Euphrates near Babylon, and God gives him vision after vision. He is physically in Babylon, but the Spirit of God takes him to various places, and it is as real as if he were there in his physical body. Ezekiel 8, 2 through 4, it says, Then I looked, this is Ezekiel, and he says, And there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me, took me, Ezekiel, by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted him up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. So God has literally, the Spirit of the Lord has literally lifted him up in the spirit and moved him to Jerusalem. He is at the temple. And, he, and it's not just that he's seeing this one wild picture. I mean, God goes into detail with him. 
He is as though he is walking with the angel of the Lord and he is seeing all of this stuff that's been going on in the, t the temple. God's heart is grieved. This is before the destruction of the temple. And God has had it. And he's hurt. You know, you can hurt the, the heart of God. You can break his heart. Ezekiel is seen, and the angel is taking him around, and he is seen. He's shown an image of jealousy. Now, these are things that are hidden. It, because everything looks like the whited sepulcher full of dead men's bones. It looks okay on the outside, but there's, there's things that are wrong. And he takes him into a secret place, and he sees these unclean paintings on the wall. He sees 70 elders offering incense to idols in the secret place. They got their little secret room. He sees the women weeping for Tammuz, the fertility god, right there in the temple. And he sees the priests and the elders worshiping the sun god with their backs turned to the temple. They're turned completely away from the presence of God. And now he sees something more, it, it just, it breaks my heart. And my husband and I, when we were reading this before, we went over this a couple of times. We sat there and we were weeping because you could feel the heart of God. It says, now he begins to see the glory of God lifted from the Holy of Holies. He lifted off of that Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim leaned over and touched wing to wing, and he sees the presence of God lifted up from that place. God is moving, and he pauses. He moves from over the Ark of the Covenant, and he moves to the threshold of the door, and God pauses there. The glory of God pauses. And then he moves to the gate of the temple. And again, God pauses. He's moving slowly. Finally, in Ezekiel 11.22, it describes God's departure. It says, So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. And it stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. God's glory stood on the Mount of Olives. He did not want to go. But the cup was full of sin and iniquity. He was not regarded in his own place. The king of glory. And because of all this that was going on in secret, his heart was broken, and he's going to leave. And so they see him. They see the glory. Ezekiel sees the glory on the Mount of Olives, and that's where it was left. When Jesus returns to this earth, where is the first place that he's going to set his feet? The Mount of Olives. Right where he left, that's right where he's coming back, on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel is then brought back in the vision 
to Babylon among the captives, and he shares the details of the vision with them. So the commentators that don't want to think that God can do this, this can show you God can take you any place. And when you're in deep intercessory prayer, God will move you. He can move you. I prayed for a man one time that he would be saved. And when I stretched out my hand, I knew he was laying on his bed. And he was contemplating. He was thinking about the things of God. And I stretched out my hand and I could feel his hair under my hands. And I prayed for him. And this man was saved. He's an Assemblies of God minister. And he's ministering to this day. And this happened when I was about 19 years old. So God can take you to places in the spirit where you cannot hardly discern whether it's reality or vision or what it is. But our God is just the same with us as he was with Ezekiel, just the same as he was with Daniel. And so Daniel now has had this vision, and he is 250 miles away from where he is seen. So I have no problem with Daniel being in Babylon. And being shown in the spirit this vision of the ram and the he-goat. When the Medo-Persian overthrew Babylon, Susa became the capital of the Persian Empire. Eighty years after Daniel had this vision, Susa became Esther's home. Queen Esther. 107 years later, it was the city from which Nehemiah departed to return to Palestine. The citadel was the palace that housed the royal residence and had had strong fortifications. Verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and I saw there, and standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high. But one horn was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So we know from the vision of the beasts that the lopsided bear is this ram. The ram represented Medo-Persia. The two horns representing power symbolized Media and Persian, the two kingdoms that forged an alliance to create Medo-Persia. The longer horn, or the higher horn, stood for Persia, Cyrus, which had become more powerful in the alliance and had risen to displace media in leadership after the two nations merged. So it just kind of withered away. And so when you're looking for information on them, you sometimes it'll just come up under the Persian Empire. By the way, the guardian spirit of the Persian Empire was portrayed as a ram. And when the Persian king went into battle, he carried the head of a ram with him. I hope it's gold or something and not a real one. (laughs) Verse 4. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Pushing westward, northward, and southward. These are the directions of the conquest of Medo-Persia. Westward, the Persia conquered westward Babylon, 
Mesopotamia, Syria, and Asia Minor. Northward, Colchis, Armenia, Iberia, and the dwellers on the Caspian Sea. Southward, Judea, Egypt, Ethiopia, Libya, also India, under Darius. He does not say eastward, for the Persians themselves came from the east. Cyrus the Great created the largest empire of the world. The world has ever known at that time and maybe to this day. And you start looking at the maps of, uh, of Persia. The directions that it expanded are perfectly in line with this prophecy, as you can see on any map when you look at a, a Medo-Persian empire map. So that an animal could with could withstand, so that no animal could withstand him as part of that scripture, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Cyrus was obviously skilled in battle, and judging by the size of his empire alone, few could withstand him. But he was even more skilled in diplomacy. He was often seen as a liberator to the countries he conquered. God was not necessarily displeased with him. He knew him, called him, and um, gave him his commission, Cyrus. To this day, he is called the father in many of the countries he conquered because he was seen as a father figure by his empire. And he became great. Not only did he become great, he is one of the few people remembered by that name, Cyrus the Great, and then there's Alexander the Great, but Cyrus the Great. And Xerxes was the last great ruler of Persia, and he was king during the days of Esther. He made an expedition against Europe and Greece. This is Xerxes, and he brought with him an army of 300,000 men and their families. And they were on their way to gain control of Athens. Their Persian diplomats had come to this place called Sparta. And if you ever had the opportunity to see the 300, uh, that's worth watching. Uh, and then uh, to get cut through the mustard and get to the absolute truth, I would suggest going on the History Channel and you can find it too. And then you can kind of spew out the things that aren't accurate. But the Persian diplomats had come to Sparta to find, they said, we've come to find the earth and the water. And when they met up with the men of Sparta, they said, we're going to show you the place to find the earth and the water. And they pushed them down a well. So Xerxes is coming to invade and to pay them back. And they met opposition by this Spartan commander, Leonidas, Gerard Butler, 300, <laughs> and, his 300 and his 300 Spartan warriors and 700 thespians. And then there were some miscellaneous fighters that went with him that he really didn't trust some of them, and some of them really just surrendered right off in the bat. So... Uh, anyway, it was, but his 300, uh, the, Spartan, uh, the Spartans were brought into military service if you were a young man at like age seven. And they were seasoned. They were, they were fighters. They weren't carpenters. They weren't uh, butchers. They weren't farmers. They were soldiers. So they were well seasoned. But <clears throat> anyway, um, 
Leonidas and his 300 Spartan warriors and the 700 Thespians and some miscellaneous spiders, where Leonidas and his Spartans lead their small group to a place called Thermopylae. And that's on your, one of your little maps in there. You can see where that's at. And it's where they held up this huge army by hand-to-hand -hand combat in a narrow canyon. And the invading army, uh, Xerxes actually set his chariot up on a hill to watch this huge Persian army wipe out these Spartans and this, this Grecian army. And he literally got so upset when he saw what was coming, he rose out of his chariot two or three times to look because he couldn't believe what had happened. Because they were in this, like a, um, a forge or a canyon, narrow. And so this, the Spartans, they were heavily, they knew how to defend themselves. And they had these long, whatever things, pokers. <laughs> Uh, what do they call those long? In, yes, well, it's, a, it's a it's a what is it? I heard some. It, it's not a sword. It's a something. It's like a spear, but it's really a long one. Yeah, and there's like a it's like that. But anyway, they had those, and so as he's watching his invading army, the, his army is becoming bloodied badly. But. The Spartans lose that battle, but 20,000 Persians lay dead, and the 300 Spartans and the 700 Thespians. But can you imagine, I think of what the Lord says, you know, how many uh, that can fall at our right hand. Uh, this was a mighty battle, and it, it's an interesting one to look up. The Spartans and the Thespians had taught Greece and the world an enduring lesson about courage in the face of impossible odds. And this gave the rest of Greece courage to be able to stand and resist because the Persians were going to take them over. And I just think sometimes, you know, when you have to, when, when a man of courage steps out to do something, uh, it, it affects the body of Christ, if a man is courageous, even in, with the gospel, with, when it, with anything you do, uh, it speaks, even if it looks like you go down in flames, but it speaks. Verse 5, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And history has confirmed the identification of this goat as Greece. This goat was unusual. It had four horns and a notable horn between his eyes. And that notable horn represented Alexander the Great. Without touching the ground signifies that it is a reference to the speed. Speed is an appropriate designation for Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire for several reasons. Number one, the speed in which he conquered the known world. He died as a young man at age 32, and if you look him up, it'll say 30, you will see 32, 33, but his birthday was in July. He died in June, so that's why they say 33. He was 32. 
after only 13 years of military campaigns, and he had an unprecedented and unequaled feat. His army was known for its ability to traverse great distances very quickly. Once at the battle, the, inten the intentionally small army was able to quickly outmaneuver their opponents using the Greek phalanx, which is a picture, you have a picture of that, and they would just be able to cover themselves up and uh, the way that they, they were armor to armor, and I tell you, Christians could take a lesson from that. Just armor to armor, shoulder to shoulder, uh, close-knit. There's strength in that where there's no penetration. You cannot penetrate that. That's what the, the, um, Medes, the uh, Persians were having a terrible time because they could not penetrate uh, the, their fighting position. So once at the battle, the intentionally small army was able to quickly outmaneuver their opponents using the Greek phalanx, a fighting style developed by Alexander's father. Verse 6, then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. Verse 7, and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So Alexander came in and he messed him up. So the goat, Alexander in Greece, attacks the ram, Medo-Persia, and defeats this. This event took place a mere three or so years after, the, after Alexander became king. So he's very young. King at 20, so by the time he's 23, maybe 24 years old. Terms like with furious power and he was moved with rage against him probably speaks of the extreme hostility Alexander, and for that matter, all of Greece had against the Persians at this point. Alexander's father was planning an invasion of Persia when he was murdered. This grudge against the Persians and Alexander and all of Greece were nursing was in part because of the Persian conquest of the mainland of Greece after the famous battle of Thermopylae, where the, where the Greeks stood and fought. To make a long story short, the proud Grecians absolutely hated being conquered by the Persians. And when Alexander took the throne, he made a beeline for Persia. Therefore, verse 8, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. The uncanny accuracy of this prophecy continues. Here it says that the Grecian Empire will grow very great, but when it becomes strong, the horn, Alexander, will be broken, and four other horns or rulers of the goat will succeed him. Alexander died at the height of his power due to a fever. He was, he, he was, um, that's putting it kindly, he was, uh, he drank too much, he was, uh, he was a little bit of a womanizer, and some suspect maybe even a, 
manomizer, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, but I don't think, I, I'm, I, I question that. I really do. I, I, I question that. It, it just it seems to me like he was more inclined to be around women. Although that was very in, quite like it is now. Alexander died at the height of his power due to a fever. And he, had, he may have had a uh, malaria, he may have had some sort of a, a disease, but uh, he, it took about 10 days before, him, for, before he died, when he, he was very, very ill. But his famous last words concerning who to give his empire to were, give it to the strong, which after a few murders of Alexander's children and brother was interpreted as give it to my four generals. Took them about 20 years, but they became uh, the four successors. These four generals split up the empire four ways. The phrase four winds of heaven is appropriate because these four empires are referred to by their cardinal directions in chapter 11, which we're going to get to. King of the north, king of the south. These are phrases that you're going to be familiar with. It's going to really help you understanding the prophecy. And the phase four winds of heaven is often a way for scripture to speak of the cardinal directions, though it is also often used to allegorically describe the entire world. The four horns. Uh, Lysimachus was one of the uh, the, um, generals, and he ruled the northern part of Alexander's empire. Cassander, this western part. Seleucus, the eastern part and Ptolemy, the southern part. Verse 9, And out of one of them, out of one of these four, uh, one of these four territories, uh, a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Who is this little horn? History has identified this little horn as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. And I, you really, I really like that, uh, the picture that I gave you, and it has the, the goat with the horn broken off, and then you can see the different ones, and you can see as, uh, out of uh, the Seleucid horn that comes uh, the type of the Antichrist. He is a, uh, he just gives you a hint of what the Antichrist is going to be like. So, <clears throat> he's a, he is the infamous brother of Cleopatra, it says, but we don't know, it's not necessarily Cleopatra. We, he ascended the throne following the murder of his brother, the former king, Seleucus uh, Philopater. He was not even the rightful heir uh, Demetrius, the son of Seleucus, the rightful heir to the throne, was still alive, but he was held as a hostage in Rome. So Antiochus succeeded in obtaining the throne largely through flattery and bribery, and he came to power in 175 B.C. He invaded Egypt. He defeated Ptolemy VI. He is recalled from Egypt by Rome, where he made Jerusalem a buffer state. He plundered and he desecrated the temple. He called himself Epiphanes, the illustrious one. And the Jews 
called him Epimanes, which means the madman. <laughs> their little nickname for him. The quote from the Maccabees, this is the second book, which gives you, this is a, a little ex- excerpt of a letter that the king sent out, which kind of shows you his frame of mind and what the Jews were, were going to have to put, what they, well, what they were going to have to put through because Daniel's seeing this many, many years before it actually happened. Uh, the king sent mess- letters by messenger to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, and he directed them to follow customs strange to the land. Don't let anything those Jews are used to change it. He, to, forbid men, uh, to forbid burn offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary. To profane their Sabbaths and their feasts. To defile their sanctuary and their priests to build altars in sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised, which was a horrible thing for them to have to do. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they should forget the law and change all the ordinances. And whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Kind of looks like Antichrist here. The glorious land. The glorious land refers to Palestine, and here the vision begins to focus on the future of Israel and the Jews. Jews. Antiochus was especially vengeful against the Jews, whom he persecuted brutally. He had a real, real problem. And, you know, he, he starts out small, and he just becomes more vengeful, and he, he, he's just small. He is one of the greatest persecutors Israel has ever known. In one assault on Jerusalem, 40,000 Jews were killed in three days, and 10,000 more were taken into captivity. This suppression came to a head in December of 168 B.C. when Antiochus returned in frustration from Alexandria where he had been turned back by the Roman commander Popelius Lanus, and I probably slaughtered that name, and vented his exasperation on the Jews. He sent his general, Apollonius, with 20,000 troops under orders to seize Jerusalem on a Sabbath. There he erected an idol of Zeus, and he desecrated the altar by offering swine on it. And this idol became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation, which served as a type of future abomination that will be set up in Jerusalem's sanctuary to be built in the last days. Christ predicts this in Matthew 24, 15. He says, therefore, when you see... The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and he tells him, you know, they're to flee. So he says, whoever reads, let him understand. Jewish resistance, this was just so intolerable. And I I don't know whether I had shared this before, too, that some mothers that had circumcised their sons, um, they had tied those babies around the mother's necks and then killed them. 
Um, he, he was just horrible. And I think of, the, of what Antichrist, because he, he's just a minute uh, uh, picture of what the Antichrist will be like. And I, it, is, it greatly distresses me when I think of people being so haphazard about their walk with God or wanting to wait till later to make a decision, and they actually think that they're going to have a chance after Jesus comes. When the Antichrist, for three and a half years, because that's what it's called, that's what they, there's going to be tribulation for seven, but the last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. And I almost resent the movies like... Uh, that, that show the rapture and then that shows life basically kind of going on like it was I don't think so I really do not think so there is going to be hell on earth and where during this time one out of three Jews died the word tells us that at that time two out of three will die it tells us when in the word and when we've studied and when we first talked about the Nephilim that the power of the enemy will be leashed on this earth. Angels be messing around, openly messing with God's people. And when I say God's people, I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the Jews that will come to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Because we're not going to be here. The Jewish resistance to this began in the village of Modin, near Jerusalem, where Mattathias, a high priest, was ordered to bow down to an idol. He was ordered to eat the flesh of a pig, and Mattathias refused. When another villager stepped forward and offered to cooperate on Mattathias' behalf, this high priest became outraged. He just had it. He drew his sword and he killed the villager and then he turned on the Greek officer and killed him too. And his five sons and the other villagers then attacked the remaining soldiers, killing all of them. Mattathias and his family went into hiding in the mountains uh, where other Jews wishing to fight against the Greeks joined them. Eventually, they succeeded in retaking their land from the Greeks. These rebels became known as the Maccabees, or the Hasmoneans. And we don't have the book of Maccabees. I, they don't, uh, it's not a considered a, um, a, a, a canonized book of the Bible, but it is a good historical book. There's a lot of historical fact, and, and uh, it, it would be beneficial to read. Verse 10. And it grew up, oh wait, I didn't finish here. For Four years later, on December 25th of 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus, a Jewish nationalist, which is the son of this Mattathias, he led the Jews in rededicating the temple of, to God. This is the event that Jews have celebrated with Hanukkah ever since, and we'll go into that a little bit more. 
Verse 10, and it grew up to the host of heaven, this little horn, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, the stars may refer to the children of Israel, whom God uh, predicted would be as numerous as the stars of heaven to Abraham. Many scholars regard the stars and the host of heaven as angels who have some connection with the Jews. Personal opinion, I, I feel like when this has to do with the Antichrist, I, I, we're going to see things we have never, you know, people that are here on earth are going to see things that, have, that they've never seen before. There's going to be a war in heaven. So there's going to be some changing. And I like that one picture that I brought. It just, I don't know, my spirit just like, ooh, it just quickened me because I thought, Lord, am I going to see this or uh, be part of this? But it, show, it was showing the, the mass of people standing before the throne of God, and you see God on his throne. And you see that ugly face of the Antichrist railing accusations and, and uh, blaspheming God and speaking against the children, against the saints in heaven. So, I mean, it's, it's a, a bad thing. I, I just feel like that people <laughs> need to get real serious. <laughs> so, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. In reference to Antiochus, this occurred when he, most likely, had the godly high priest, Onias III, killed in favor of a Hellenistic man who simply paid Antiochus for the job, men like Jason and later men as lost. You have to read your, if you want to look more into that, I can give you some help. Verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to this horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. We know who the little, in, the little horn was, an antichrist type who desecrates the altar and attempted to destroy the Jews, and it's a foreshadowing of the antichrist's future. Abomination of desolation in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel at the middle of the tribulation. In, next, uh, in ver the next chapter, we're going to be learning about the 70 weeks. Attacks on Israel are not the same as attacks on other people. Anti-Semitism has an extreme dimension, and I wish our president could get that. Attacks on Israel are not the same as attacks to other people. Anti-Semitism has an extra dimension. Someone sent me the cutest little um, cartoon uh, figure the other day. I don't know who it was. It might have been one of you. But it showed um, Israel pulling on this rope, and it showed all the countries that are against them pulling on the other. And just one person, one one person on the Israeli side that you see, and he's pulling, but it's not moving anywhere, but all of a sudden you look back and God's finger is on the rope behind the Israeli. It's not going nowhere. So, because of transgression, oh wait, wait, read that part. 
uh, attacks on Israel. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. It should be noted that the word days does not appear in the original language. The words that do appear are evenings, which is Hebrew, Ereb, and mornings, which is Hebrew, is Boker. So it's evening and morning sacrifices. It's not day. The Maccabean army, led by Judas Maccabeus, rebelled against the Syrian army, led by Antiochus Epiphanes, captured the Temple Mount, and cleansed and rededicated the sanctuary. The 2300 evenings and mornings correspond to 168 B.C. to 165 B.C. There were two daily sacrifices and one on the Sabbath. The time represents the time span when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the altar, sacrificed a pig or a hog on the altar, in the time of its rededication, to its time of the rededication by Judas Maccabeus. According to Judas, to Jewish tradition, miraculously, one day's supply of consecrated oil lasted for eight days. These events are celebrated as the Jewish Feast of Hanukkah occurring near Christmas time. So they only had enough oil when they were celebrating, and after the, the temple, the, uh, the altar had been cleansed, everything was cleansed, and they were going to light the candle. The, it was an oil-burning candle. They only had enough consecrated oil to last one day. Because you can't just offer any kind of oil. It has to be God is particular. And he had a consecrated oil. Make sure that you do everything after the pattern that I have shown you. So... When they, they, they went in, they, they figured it would go out, but they went in, and the next day there was still the oil burning, and it lasted eight days. And so it was a miracle, and this is part of their Hanukkah celebration. A persecutor of the Jews in Russia asked a Jew what he thought the outcome would be if a wave of persecution continued. And the Jew answered, The result will be a feast. Pharaoh tried to destroy the Jews, but the result was the Passover. Haman attempted to destroy the Jews, but the result was the Feast of Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy the Jews, but the result was the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. Verse 13, or 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision... I was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ule who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Daniel is the only Old Testament book that identifies angels by name. The use of Gabriel's proper name probably reflects the importance of this vision and its interpretation. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end, 
and for all of those that really, really want to see angels, <laughs> I tell you, I don't know about that. I don't know if my heart could take it. <laughs> Because most of these, most of these old time um, in the Old Testament, when they had a visitation by an angel, unless he came in and he was totally looked like a man, when they come in their angelic form, uh, you're going to go down. <laughs> because I'm sure they're absolutely magnificent. Verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. Verse 19, and he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. This vision reveals the final period of the indignation and the appointed time of the end. Clearly, this was future from Daniel's point in history. Yet it doesn't just refer to Antiochus Epiphanes exclusively. It also refers to the end times before Jesus returns. Latter time, not just a late time, as in a few hundred years from, not, from now, but latter as an eschatological or final time, though both are probably in view, but again, the more literal referent is antichrist or referred as antichrist verse 20 the ram which you saw so now we're being taught by gabriel the ram which you saw having the two horns they are the kings of media and persia and the male goat is the kingdom of greece the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. When Alexander died, the Grecian Empire was split between his four generals, and these divisions of the empire would never be as strong as they were under Alexander the Great. So that's what Gabriel is saying. Here we find that our interpretation of the animals that represent kingdoms were correct. We also take note of the fantastic accuracy of God's word. God, who is the Alpha and Omega, can easily tell us history in advance. Verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. Almost all scholars recognize that Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled what Gabriel predicted in these verses. The stern-faced king, Antiochus, tried to destroy the holy people. He was bold and deceptive. He was powerful because God allowed him to be so. He did much damage, especially to Jerusalem and the temple. He became prosperous and carried out his objectives. He destroyed powerful people, including the Jewish high priest, as well as many Jews. He fooled many people with his shrewdness, some of whom were unsuspecting. He exalted himself even to the extent of minting coins that bore his image and the inscription, God Manifest, Theos Epiphanes. He also opposed God, the Prince of Princes. I believe that the verses 23 through 25 are speaking of 
the future of the Jews and the Antichrist during the time of the Great Tribulation. He fulfilled all of that that, that that has been laid out. But this is for the Jews upcoming. It's, it's coming. 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And I, you know something? I, I love this, although this power, not of his own power, but I think about with, with of godly people, that God gives, gives us power, gives us position, gives us purpose, but it's not our own power. But now this power is what the enemy will do. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So he's going to take down kings and presidents, and he's going to take down the Jews that are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to be the holy people that are going to go through the, this tribulation. We can make a case for Antiochus with each of these points, but it is far more for the Antichrist. Verse 25, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. You talk about transfer of wealth. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. Notice the striking similarities be between Antiochus and the future Antichrist. We see as the little horn in chapter 7. We see that Antiochus did on a smaller scale what Antichrist is going to do on a large scale. He caused deceit to prosper. He was a master of intrigue, became very strong, not by his own power, will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. The Antichrist will also oppose the prince of princes. But God, the Son, will break him without human agency. Verse 26, And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. This sickness is interesting. It could be said that the reason for the sickness was the grief of having seen the future of his people and the destruction that would come upon them.